Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to episode 9 of the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week in episode 9, we are looking at Excalibur number 9, The Two-Edged Sword, originally published in June 1989. The creative team is Chris Claremont on writing, Alan Davis on penciling and plotting, Paul Neary on inks, John A. Wilcox on colors, Tom Orzachowski on lettering, and Terry Kavanaugh on editing. of making. This is the start of a new story arc and new status quo of sorts for Excalibur as a multiversal superhero team. We've had the multiverse teased, of course, before now, but from this point on and for some time to come, the multiverse will be a central source of Excalibur's mission and conflicts. We've got some great art and character development and Nazis to talk about today. We've also got a marvelous guest who I know is going to have some very interesting thoughts about Megan, among other things. But first, we'll do a little intro to the regular team. I am Dr. Anna Papard. I write about sex and gender in superheroes and comics in a bunch of academic places and for websites like the middle spaces and shelf dust and comfort food comics and comics xf for which i am currently co-writing with the wonderful jude jones reviews of the new nightcrawler led team up book way of x which just started this week related to that last job and several of the former i am also kurt wagner's not official but still trying to be pr manager i am joined as always by mav if you'd like to introduce yourself hi i'm chris maverick and i i, I grade papers as a cispian task of like where it never ends and every time i grade a paper they put like three more in front of me and, and I'm pretty sure I'm in hell. Um, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm Christopher Maverick. I am an adjunct instructor at University of Duquesne or at Duquesne University. I can't even remember the school's name right now. Oh God, I'm so tired. <laughs> it's finals week as we record this. <laughs> I don't know if you can tell. Um, Duquesne University and at Mount Aloysius College. Uh, I study um, cultural studies with a focus on 20th and 21st century pop culture, especially Especially sex, gender, and class, and, and and race, and things like that. Uh, I focus a lot on comic books, professional wrestling, television, movies. Host of another podcast called Vox Popcast, where we discuss that kind of thing. And well, there, I have to talk about a different thing every week. So I, I actually really like doing this show, where it's just like, oh, let's just read this one thing, which largely is good <laughs> over and over again. So this is a good episode today. So I'm, I'm excited today. It should be. We're going to talk about monsters and lots of things related to monsters. And before we can get to that. We got to get through these intros. So, Andrew, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Andrew DeMann. I'm a lecturer at St. Jerome's University, uh, and I'm the project lead for the Claremont Run, which is a big Chris Claremont-oriented project with some social media stuff. I'm also very excited to be here today because rumor has it we're going to be talking a lot about Megan, and that makes me very happy. <laughs> yes. What was it you said on a previous pod that you want to be her her protective her father? <laughs> yes, yes, her adoptive father who thinks she can do better. <laughs> Excellent. So that's that's your catchphrase, I suppose. Now, 
Um, we are joined, as I mentioned, by a very special guest um, in Dr. Sam Langsdale. Welcome, Sam. Oh, thank you so much. I'm really, really thrilled to be here. Sam is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of California, Berkeley, and a former member of the philosophy department at University of North Texas. She's the co-editor with Elizabeth Ray Cody of the anthology Monstrous Women in Comics and a contributor to a book we've mentioned on this pod before, my own anthology Super Sex, Sexuality, Fantasy, and the Superhero, where she wrote about female and queer representations in the Thor film franchise, a really fabulous essay that everyone who's listening to this podcast would enjoy. So Sam, before we get into our discussion of this issue in particular, is this your first time encountering Excalibur? Had you read this series before? Uh, no. In fact, I'd never even heard of it until y'all started your podcast. So this is definitely <laughs> my first time. Fair enough. But you have like substantial familiarity with X-Men, sort of the larger franchise, right? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I mean, it's basically, well, I will just say it's one of my primary gateway drugs into comics um so how i never got to excalibur well i mean i, I read your primer um which was really helpful oh and thank you and so that did make some sense of it for me um that it was kind of under the marvel uk umbrella made it a little bit inaccessible for um, people in the u.s and so i felt a little bit better about that like <laughs> i didn't have to hand back my geek card immediately <laughs> but yeah this was a brand new experience Okay, so if X-Men was kind of your gateway drug to comics, like what's sort of your history with the franchise? Like how old were you when you first started reading X-Men comics? Pretty old, uh, relatively speaking. So my brother is 11 years older than I am. Um, and my first exposure to comics was his original Spider-Man comics. He also had, I'm probably going to get this wrong, and I really apologize to people who are like <laughs> super into vinyl. But he also had the comics that I think had like 78s that, you know, like records of Spider-Man that came with the books oh. and so I got those you know right as he was finishing up high school I was going into kindergarten and so I guess he sort of left these things behind and and that's where I got into comics was Spider-Man for a while as long as his backstash lasted me and then it wasn't really until high school that I started getting into the X-Men and that happened to be perfectly honest primarily because of films and that was really exciting for me and and I loved Jean Grey in particular um, as she was played by Femke Jensen and so that's when I went looking for comics and picked up the Dark Phoenix saga first and then started reading around more widely after that so right in the high school the college transition period oh yeah that's not late at all I mean I didn't really start reading comics until my early 20s and didn't read this series until my didn't read X-Men in general until my late 20s so okay I feel we all we all come at these things from different ways and in different places. Um, we will get back to some first impressions, I think, because I'm very curious about what you made of this series as a first-time reader of Excalibur, but with that X-Men background. But first, let's do our intro to the issue and get into our discussion after that. So Excalibur number 9, The Two-Edged Sword, opens at the Excalibur Lighthouse, vaguely located off the west coast of England, where Kitty's beloved dragon Lockheed is waiting for the team to get home. As you'll recall, Excalibur left in a hurry to head to the Inferno in New York three issues before. Lockheed thinks Kitty is home, and she is, but it's not Kitty. The woman who strangles Lockheed into consciousness is an emaciated ghostly version of Shadowcat from an alternate universe where the Nazis won the war. There's also a Nazi version of Captain Britain called Hauptmann England along with Nazi Megan and Nightcrawler. The Nazi version of Excalibur called Lightning Force is here to retrieve Moira McTigard, Reich Minister of Genetics, and her bodyguard Callisto who were accidentally switched for the 616 versions when their train passed through a portal created by the mysterious robot way back in Excalibur number four. Continuity is getting real around here. Meanwhile, the regular non-Nazi versions of Excalibur are still in New York, specifically in Westchester in the ruins of the X-Mansion, which was recently destroyed by Mr. Sinister, doing tests on Captain Britain, who seems to be losing his powers. Megan's powers aren't working properly either. She's shape-shifting erratically based solely on who is physically close to her. She also sucks Phoenix into a painful physical fusion that leaves both women confused and upset. The testing is cut short when Excalibur gets a call from Di Thomas of Scotland Yard, requesting the team's presence back in London. They board the Blackbird jet that Kurt pilfered in issue number eight and take off. Back in jolly old England, famous misogynist Nigel Frobisher is at the London branch of the Hellfire club complaining about his low social status which he blames on ice queen boss courtney ross who you'll no doubt recall is actually the evil saturn 9 at least i hope you'll recall it because this issue does not 
remind you, Saturnine hears Nigel slagging her and challenges him to a game of chance. High card wins. The stakes start low, but double with every draw. Nigel is winning until he isn't. He ends up in debt to Saturnine for a million pounds, which he can't pay. Saturnine assures him that he will pay, somehow, which isn't ominous at all. From there, we cut to yet another location, the Tower of London, where Di Thomas and Alessand and Alastair Stewart of the Weird Happenings organization are discussing what to do with Nazi Moira and Callisto. There's also a tour group wandering the halls who are human until they're not. Another interdimensional portal substitutes the human tourists for anthropomorphic dinosaur counterparts. While everyone's still in shock about that, Hauptmann England arrives and attacks everyone. Excalibur arrives at the tower in time to try to fight Hauptmann and Lightning Force, emphasis on try. They quickly get their butts handed to them, all except Captain Britain, who's forced to steal an old costume off a museum mannequin to face off with his Nazi counterpart. We end with the promise of a showdown between the two captains. Okay, so a lot happens in this issue as usual. I also feel like it has a bit of a vibe of like an in-between issue. We're setting up a lot of future plot threads, but I want to start with some first impressions and as usual, guest's privilege, we will start with Sam. Sam, as a newbie to Excalibur, jumping in with this issue, what are some of your first impressions? Um, well, I will say that I just absolutely loved it. it. It ticks a lot of my boxes. So that it's very colorful, it's got humor, we've got a lot of like weird kind of mixing of genres almost is yeah. fabulous. I love it. Give it give it to me. Give me more. Um, <laughs> but I will say like I'm my one of my first impressions because I'm kind of partial to animal sidekicks. I was like, man, I got the issue where the dragon gets choked oh, out on the first oh, page. Like, yeah. <laughs> I was so bummed, but that's a good thing because it just means that I will go back and, and read the previous issues and I'll keep up with y'all because I just love the idea that they have Lockheed. And I really was also immediately very confused. I mean, I do think this issue does a great job of setting up what's happening immediately, right? Like that idea that Lockheed has some awareness that his human is coming home, but then they say, but it's not, it's not actually her. I'm like, ah, oh, I know what this is. This is like an, you know, interdimensional double. That was great. But I still had this moment of confusion when I saw Nightcrawler and I'm like, why is he dressed like Michael Jackson? Like it was really yeah, I thought really that. strange to me. But yeah, I, I think beyond those kind of, you know, knee-jerk reactions, what I absolutely loved, and I know we're we're gonna get further into this, but just right off the bat, I love the women characters. Um, I love seeing Kitty dressed as a teen. This yeah. is not something that I have as like the primary image of her. And especially like reading more contemporary X-Men comics where she's sort of taken a lead role in very of the teams and she's very much like an adult now and so I just it was such a, a really satisfying feeling to look and see teen Kitty as a, like sassy and also just very assertive type of character um, and then what happened with Megan uh, as they're testing Captain Britain was just so fascinating to me and I just I got really sucked into thinking about Megan and learning more about her so for me my first impression is this is a very enjoyable experience and, and I'm excited to read more. Oh, awesome. Yeah, we're all very excited to talk about Monstrous Women and Megan for sure. Um, other first impressions first before we sort of move on to picking up on some of those some of those discussion threads. Oh my god, you killed Lockheed, you bastards. Um, <laughs> this he's, was... he's, 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 spoiler, he's not dead. Don't yeah, I know. <laughs> I know that now because you know, I've had 30 years to process this, but you know, but, 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 did, you, but did you think that he died the first time it you It doesn't say it? he's unconscious. Um, Evil Kitty comes up through the ground and strangles Lockheed the dragon whom, you know, I'm 14 years old. I've been reading this thing about Lockheed for a few years now. She strangles Lockheed the dragon and then he's just laying there. I'm like, what oh. the hell is this? <laughs> it, you said in your recap that, you know, she strangles him into unconsciousness. The book does That's not true. say that. The That's book true. very much looks like Lockheed's dead. And that is not cool. That was very traumatic and not okay. So that was my first impression. That was like my literal first impression Aww. of the book. I was just like, wait, what? Like, because he, he does not move. She drops him to the ground and, and he's there. <laughs> it's quite um, graphic. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at it now and I'm like, yeah, just because I know that he's not dead, I didn't really spend a lot of time thinking about it, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, that was not, that was like literally, that's the one thing that I absolutely remember from the first time I read this. And then it's just not addressed because, you know, they don't find him for a while. Like the I, you got through the end of the issue and... And the real team hasn't encountered him. So, like, it just, I thought they just killed Lockheed. And I'm like, God, <laughs> that is so not okay. Well, and this book has done, like, scary things like that to us before. Like, we talked a lot about Courtney's death a few, 
right, right. And and you know, and how ha- and coming off that where I'm, you know, am still dealing with the fact that they just blanketly kill Courtney and then no one cares because no one knows. I was very afraid of that. <laughs> Beyond that, I think you're absolutely right. This is an in-between issue. And you know, I had no way of knowing yet at the time, but cross time caper was almost upon us. Um, so this is setting the stage for a lot of things. But after the last couple of very plot heavy crossover issues, it was nice to see some serious character building so having claremont and davis together again and seeing the character building particularly in, in these opening danger room scenes was really nice for me and i and i think um i mentioned this briefly last episode where we were talking about the magic of kitty pride is you're supposed to be a 14 15 year old boy and you're supposed to think oh if i were on this team i could date her and you couldn't because she'd hate you because kitty is better than you are and kitty only dates or uh, kitty only only dates older boys and you know and she's frankly kind of bitchy to everybody which is what i love about her right like (laughs) she is being a complete jerk to brian here just because she's like oh too heavy let's make a little heavier see what happens and it's just it is absolutely the perfect mentality of what happens when you put a 14 15 year old girl in charge let's just see you know you know know, and, and, and and i don't mean that in a bad way right like she's i love that she's sitting there she's in her element this is her danger room you know she's been in this lighthouse for and and in moira's place for a year she is now in her danger room that she built with the professor she knows how this stuff works and just seeing her there not just in the kid clothes which sam mentioned but she's sitting there at her computer chewing bubble gum yeah and and for me that is like definitive kitty pride there i mean they've put brian in an x-men trainee uniform and she's just like let's see how much we can do here uh, a little more okay uh, okay you're too tired lasers boom you know <laughs> <laughs> you know <laughs> you know i i love that about it. and i guess they're actually paintball bullets but still it doesn't matter the fact that she is just adoring being there being at home this is a place where she feels like leader instead of instead of wondering is it Curtis Brian this is a place where Kitty feels very in control of the situation at least for the very beginning of it and I have thoughts about the rest of the issue too but like what I love is the team building moment on these first five or six pages yeah I love that scene I love Kitty and Kurt in that scene too so much too I mean Pod knows that I love their friendship but yeah they're adorable there I love that he just there's no question about her being in charge and he's just like going along with it and sort of having the friendly relationship with her and teasing and it's really like we're back home at the x mansion and seeing these old friends again um andrew first impressions uh the cover is really good and i love alan davis's work in posing the unconscious excalibur characters on each other especially kitty resting on kurt's like kurt's tail <laughs> yeah, i noticed that i noticed that yeah <laughs> um this is our first um alan davis issue without glennis oliver and i noticed that as well like like she yeah. wasn't there with ron limbs fill in so you're getting a more muted color palette and i kind of like excalibur when they're um full saturation i find them more suited to that one thing i was disappointed by is i really wanted some sort of scene of resolution with rachel coming back to the mansion for the first time mm. just because the way she left was like the worst way possible <laughs> so her yeah. coming to terms with that would have been really cool to see uh and then lastly just building on what mav was saying um i, I do do think that this is an important setup issue in terms of establishing who Excalibur is going to be fighting in the general sense moving forward, what types of conflict they're going to be engaged with. So the first few issues were very much hodgepodge. It's establishing the characters and their dynamic, but it's here where we start to build that, you know, multi-dimensional nefarious villain that's going to define Excalibur for the next 20 issues or so. So I think that's really important to set that tone here. And I actually think that's why the Nazis are used as kind of like training wheels for understanding multiversal villains, um, which I'm sure we'll get to talk to. <laughs> Not- talk about a little bit later (laughs) yeah nazi training wheels that's everyone knows that term yeah of course yeah (laughs) i'm there well let's let's talk about that first and then sort of move from there into into some of these discussions about monstrousness that i definitely want to have so we've been talking about sort of what the main conflicts or antagonists of excalibur are sort of in previous episodes and we've sort of come to the conclusion that they haven't had sort of a set antagonist before now you know we've had some villains introduced but they haven't had sort of a firm context for what their central conflict is other than the fact that they're all traumatized and healing through the relationship through the found family sort of relationship that they have with each other but here we have the introduction the real introduction for the first time of the multiverse in terms of them actually facing off with counterparts from another universe so alternate universes as we all know 
or a staple of superhero comics and science fiction stories before that, the specific main alternate universe conceit that we have here of a world where the Nazis won the war has its roots in science fiction books like John William Wall's novel The Sound of His Horn and Philip K. Dick's The Man in the High Castle. We're going to be attacking the meaning of alternate universes and doppelgangers many times in subsequent weeks, but let's take a first pass at it here. In terms of what is the appeal of alternate universe stories? Like what is their rhetorical function? Like what's interesting or enjoyable about writing alternate universe stories where something happens like the Nazis won the war? Like why do we tell stories like this? Why do we want to read stories like this? And I'll, I'll give you first pass at it, Sam, if you want to take a crack at it. Um, I was thinking about this primarily in terms of a recent paper presentation that I saw Kate McClancy gave a paper about a video game that does the same thing. They're sort of reimagining post-World War II in a Nazi-dominated world. And, and I don't want to oversimplify everything that Kate did. It was absolutely fantastic. I learned a lot, um, particularly being someone who's not a gamer. But, you know, some of the points that she made, I think, are probably relevant here, too. In in one sense, I think it allows creators to maintain this almost paradoxical coupling of superheroes and being underdogs. And, and it's something that shouldn't really work, but it is, I think, pretty appealing to us. And so what's one of the ways that you can do that, where you have these superpowered beings, these people that, that should be able to win every fight, but you also still really want that sort of scrappy underdog story. You want to be able to root for them. They can't just win all the time because that's boring. So so how do you sow that sort of seed of, of underdogness back in? I think one of the, the appeals of this sort of alternate universe where the bad guys win a allows you to continue that paradox. Other thoughts on alternate universes or sort of the value of these stories or why it makes sense to have Excalibur be multiversal heroes? Like, why is this a fitting context for this team? I, I think more than anything, it's um, a legacy from Captain Britain, which is where the idea of the Marvel multiverse was actually coined, right? Yeah. Where Alan Moore created the, the idea of a designation 616, parallel universes, all that kind of stuff. And one thing that I think it's important to remember, kind of, or maybe this is just like nerdy trivia, um, Alan Moore's development of the multiverse wasn't based on science fiction. It was based on science. This is the many worlds interpretation. It is well established in physics and quantum physics since the 1950s. This isn't a conceit. This is the world we live in. The dominant scientific worldview right now is that we have multiverses, uh, that there is a universe or timeline for every superposition that an electron can occupy, which means that right now in one of those other multiverses, there's a bunch of Nazi podcasters talking about an Excalibur story in which the Nazis didn't win World War II, which is <laughs> a strange conceit. But I mean, again, like that's, that's reality as we know it according to our best physicists well and you know that's sort of an exciting relatively new concept at the time that this comic is coming out too right if we're going to sit situate it kind of in in context once again yeah i think so um so again it, it's weird it, it goes back to the 1950s it, it's it's incredibly old I'm, I'm sure everyone who's read Watchmen knows that alan moore reads his physics uh, and draws on it extensively but i've always found it fascinating that we don't talk about this in like high school this is such a fundamental concept like the current field of physics relies upon it to understand everything from the Heisenberg uncertainty principle to Schrodinger's cap. But we don't talk about it. Kids don't know about it. And when you tell them there's a multiverse, they're like, wow, that's a science fiction thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> multiverse, <laughs> well, multiverse and multiple histories. Uh, so it's it's a weird, when you actually when you actually read the physics behind it, uh, Feynman's physics behind it and everything like that, mm -hmm. um, there's a multiverse where you have a divergent path that happens with every quantum action. So literally the spinning of a quark, right? You also have those universes recolliding back in and what's called the, the multiple histories interpretation because theoretically I got to our exact moment in time along my own timeline. Anna got there on hers, Sam got there on hers, and Andrew got there on his. And maybe we all came from the same timeline. Maybe we didn't. It doesn't matter because we can't tell because we're incapable of observing any other but our own. So all that matters is that we crossed over at exactly this moment and then we might diverge again. <laughs> it's really fa it's really fascinating stuff. It really that is. sounds like science fiction that like so I actually used this in a talk on comic book theory about four years ago. And then I just I had to like sort of cut a couple slides because as i was talking about it i could just see the audience's eyes glaze over the same way i'm sure everyone yeah. listening to the podcast just did yeah. but it's fascinating stuff and, and if you're like if you're a super nerd 
word, go read it. I can give you I can give you links. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think though, like our ability when you're not somebody who's in that field to take it seriously is hampered by something like a comic like this. Cause you're like, oh, the multiverse, yeah. like Excalibur. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like that comedy X-Men comic, right? Yeah, but I think that reaction is kind of important here, right? Because the idea is the, the multiverse that they show in Excalibur is going to get exceedingly complicated, right? Like over the course of the cross time caper, it's just going to keep getting weirder and weirder and weirder. Um, so, so again, presenting the most straightforward freshman year slideshow interpretation of uh, the, the multi-worlds interpretation would just be imagine a Nazi version of you and you can talk to a Nazi version of yourself. Um, so I do think there's like a weird, almost like pedagogical element to what we're setting up here that'll lead us into the cross time caper. Okay. Well, do we want to talk briefly about the Doctor Who connection? Because we've teased that a couple of times and weird happenings organization, obviously a Doctor Who, Who reference and we get, <laughs> and they get some wonderful little vaudeville jokes out of, I, I can't call it Who because now, especially in the context of the pandemic, we just think about the World Health Organization. So I just, it's fine. Like I find that really confusing yeah. now because I'm just like, yeah. Anyway. It was around then too. It was, I mean, yeah. I know, but it's just now it's so much, yeah. it's so much in our consciousness that, that it's like, anyway, yes, Andrew, I know that you wanted to talk about that. Give you first crack at talking about the significance of having sort of a Doctor Who intertext for Excalibur. This is a massive illusion. Um, the name of the character that we'd be referencing in Doctor Who was one of his most famous companions. His name was Alistair Lethbridge Stewart. We have an Alessand and an Alistair Stewart in this text. Um, he dresses exactly, Brigadier Stewart dresses exactly like Alessand dresses. It's not subtle at all. Again, they're named Who. Um, in the Doctor Who series, they're named um, Unit, which is the United Nations... I think information task force or intelligence task force. Like, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, this, this is like, like a really heavily winking bit of connection to the, that mythology, which I think is important because it has a lot of tonal connotations. Doctor Who's version of the multiverse is silly and fun. Uh, exactly. As this version of the multiverse is going to be. Yeah. And I mean, we talked before about sort of the British style humor of Excalibur a little bit and some of these contexts, like something like Doctor Who being an influence on that. Um, let's move on to talk about some of, these characters more specifically because i really want to make use sam of your specialty in monstrous women to talk about some of the characters here and especially because you specifically said you wanted to talk about megan so sam here's a big terrible question for you can you walk us through the relevance of questions of gender to discussions of monsters like what made you want to do a book about monstrous women in particular like basically give us your book in in two minutes please and <laughs> your, your book that took you years to work on and that multiple people contributed to yeah if you could just do that for our listeners that would that would be really great but yeah anything sort of in general that you want to talk about about what's important about discussing monstrous women in media what drew you to that topic yeah so it actually started um because i was working in in philosophy in a discipline that is still uh plagued by quite a lot of problems along the lines of various categories of identity specifically gender race sexuality um and i, I would say geography is a huge problem for western philosophy so because i was working in this discipline and was being assigned you know the kind of grunt work that nobody um in the permanent faculty wants to do like teaching introduction to ancient philosophy for the nine thousandth time um i found myself confronted with a lot of these classical Western philosophical texts, so things um, written by people like Aristotle. And I thought, you know, I'm going to take this seriously. I'm going to do my job right. So I'm teaching across Aristotle's um, body of work, which is enormous. I mean, the man was undoubtedly a genius. What he produced was astonishing. Um, lots of it is just horribly wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. <laughs> but it, it was impressive, nevertheless. And so I, he approached I was reading... it. He approached it with a lot of confidence. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was I was doing some reading on his sort of biological works and came across the the part where he starts to explain uh, why women are a thing, right? And it, just, <laughs> it why was are really women? <laughs> yeah. Why why even are women is basically his question. Um, and he comes to the conclusion, and I, I am being very reductive here, but you know Aristotle's fine. He doesn't really care what I have to say. Um, so he he's, basically he's been dead a couple of years, so yeah, I think you're okay. <laughs> I don't I don't think it's gonna hurt his feelings anymore. He comes to the conclusion that women are a mistake. They're they're, they're freaks of nature, right? He calls them mutilated or monstrous males. And then 
and he goes through a quite, quite detailed and complex explanation as to how it is that we get the female of any kind of species, including human. Uh, and it really just kind of struck me. I thought, God, what the hell? <laughs> this is just so, you know, in, in some way, I have to say, I knew that Aristotle probably knew better. And everybody who's built on his work and repeated or repackaged that kind of thinking knows better. Um, but there's a lot of motivations for those kinds of things to get said and to get published and then to get solidified as truth, right? There's, that's a complicated process. But the more I started reading, you know, Aristotle and then Thomas Aquinas repeats it and then eventually you get into Rousseau and, and then, you know, on to someone like Freud and they all keep kind of saying these things about women, about about them being monstrous, about them being derivative, about them being fluid, chaotic, unfixable, unpredictable, you know, emotionally violent. And and so I just thought, wow, this is really depressing. <laughs> but I at the same time, I'm reading comics and I keep hearing all these philosophical voices in my head as I'm encountering certain characters and so I mentioned for me in particular it started with Jean Grey and in the Dark Phoenix in particular the Dark Phoenix saga in particular some of the ways that she's drawn some of the dialogue that she's given directly resonates with some of the same vocabulary and so I just thought there's there's more of these right like I can see this happening it was like a Neo seeing the Matrix moment right where suddenly the code is following around me everywhere and, and so I I gave a presentation to this effect and I got a lot of really positive feedback and so then I thought well let's hear what other people have to say and I just want to offer a quick sort of footnote to this conversation I recognize entirely that monstrosity actually does intersect with other categories of gender in pop culture and in visual culture and comics in particular as well I think there's a lot to be said for monstrosity and um, men and maleness for monstrosity and non-binary gender presentations like it's everywhere, right? And I'm not, I'm not trying to make claims that women are the only characters that get framed in this way. It's just that was my interest. That's where I started. That's what I was focusing on. And so um, then I, I pitched out this conference and we just got such phenomenal feedback. And the people that came actually really widened my ability to understand and think about monstrosity and taught me a lot about different genres of comics. So the book goes into the ways that cultures make meaning by creating monsters and what does it mean when those monsters are coded as female or feminine or what does it mean when women are made monstrous um, by particular cultural parameters. And we, of course, then focus specifically on how these things happen in comics. Why do you think comics are a particularly productive place to explore some of those questions? I have my own answer to that question, but I'd love to hear you speak to it. <laughs> yeah, um, and, and actually my answer um, builds at least in part on a lot of the research that you've done. I think one of the first answers I would say is bodies, right? Um, I think in comics and in superhero comics, for me, that's my, my primary interest. You get a display of such a wide variety of corporeality and um, monsters are made first and foremost through a kind of embodied physical presence um, and so I think that we see such a, a wide exploration of, of embodiment of corporeality of bodies in comics is, is probably one of the primary um, reasons. I think that comics, now I, I realize this is also changing, I mean I just went to a really fascinating talk that was hosted by Nick Susanis and you know kind of pushing the boundaries of what we think comics are beyond being a visual medium yeah, yeah but traditionally this is how we've understood it right and so I think that visual aspect of it is really important when you read around monster theory um, you find that a lot of what makes monsters both compelling and horrifying um, is the sort of aesthetics of them um, and then I would also say um, just to kind of quote from the introduction of the book, it's something that Scott Bukotman had said, that comics themselves are little monsters, right? They're little little utopias of chaos and disorder. And so I think that as a medium, they're a really fantastic home for, for monsters precisely because of the sort of slipperiness of the media, right? Like that we have these ongoing conversations about what comics are, what, what actually constitutes a comic, how it should be read um, is actually quite a, a monstrous project, right? And so that would be my sort of last take on that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to quote Scott Bukatman again, we should we should get Scott on the pod actually. At yeah, 
<laughs> we, we know each other vaguely, but another quote of his that I always return to when thinking through superheroes is that he describes superheroes as a corporeal rather than a cognitive mapping of the subject into a cultural mm. system. So a lot of my work extends from the idea that superhero comics are a body genre. You know, they yeah. encapsulate meaning in bodies. Bodies are the meaning of the story and the conflicts between bodies, the design of bodies, the situations that bodies get put in, the spectacle of bodies is central to the meaning of these types of stories. And I think that intersects so well with a lot of the stuff you're talking about in terms of monstrousness, Sam. The um, Let's get a little bit more, maybe for some of our listeners that aren't as well versed in some of this academic ease about monsters, let's get into some more basics about when we talk about monsters or when we talk about monstrosity, what does that mean? Like, how have we traditionally defined monsters? And I'll put that to either Andrew or, or Mav, because I know both of you have done some work in, in some of these areas as well. I, I think... Um in keeping with what Stan was saying, right? Um, it, it's about the transgressive for the most part, right? Monsters are a way to take abstract things that we're afraid of and give them a physical form that we can often, you know, burn or stab. <laughs> That's a very common usage of them. What I kind of really wanted to do to evade the question as, as well is um, in light of what, what Sam and Anna were just saying about their own work, would you guys agree that like Megan as an empathic metamorph, I'm not sure it always pulls this off, but is this not like the greatest possible vehicle to explore um, um sort of um, gendered notions in comics i thought you were gonna say, i thought you were gonna say monster notions because i don't think it ever i, I think it rarely she rarely pull they rarely pull off what i would want them to do for the notion of the monsters as feminine but yeah no i agree with that gender notions i yes or at least i would think so but i'm curious what you know since they brought it up i think that megan does have the potential to be that and is not that yeah yeah, like, she's definitely like someone I would love to be, not as this version of her. I mean, I sort of I feel that way about a number of female superheroes. I mean, the superpower set I would want is Sue Storm's powers, even though they're very gendered. But I mean, that impulse to protect and disappear is very, very appealing to me. And yet I don't want to be Sue Storm as she's written. So I mean, I sort of feel similarly about Megan. The, the question is separating the separating the power from the storyline, right? So I mean, just to your actual question, Anna, about like the monstrous, I think the way Sam broke it down was good and i and i don't know that i don't know that i have anything to expand or crush upon it because for my work it's not so much the you know what makes something a monster that that i find interesting you know nazis work because there's an anxiety about nazis at the time period in which case this book is written that it is a very real threat that we need an allegory to explore um, we brought it back again a few years ago with Captain America comics when Red Skull started speaking like like uh, Jordan Peterson, and he's still <laughs> yeah, yeah and he's still he's still doing it now, right? So like this is a thing that we do in comics. I think that you know our monsters are representative of the demons we want to fight. That's I mean they are literal demons. We've talked about that on the show before. It is to me what is interesting about the superhero is. Um, as Scott said, as um, a friend of mine, Marone Langsner, has said in his work, uh, superheroes are impossible bodies. It is a visual medium wherein we can put an impossible body in a situation to con to confront an abstract problem. If we take an abstract problem like hate, like Nazidom and hate, and put it incarnate in Hoffman, England, then now we can have a physical being punch it. And that's yeah. what we get here. We get and the that's ability very to satisfying. punch a physical yeah. problem. Yeah, and, and I mean, going all the way back to Captain America Comics number one, which is, oh, look, Cap gets to punch Hitler. America's not even in the war yet, but Cap gets to punch Hitler. We feel good about this. Like, that's, that's what every is you know every problem that a superhero or supervillain embodies is ultimately and not i mean there are deconstructive comics like they like the entire point of watchmen under more is you can't punch all problems right that's that is the answer to watchmen is some problems can't be punched but the the trope of superheroness the basic the base of the genre isn't about powers it's about how do we punch our problems and that's that's really what we want to do but the major innovation or at least one of the major innovations of marvel comics in particular was the idea that heroes can be monsters and heroes at the same time yes. it's introducing like an additional level of mm -hmm. hybridity because in one of the ways we think about monsters is that they're monstrous because of hybridity they incorporate masculine and feminine into the same body they're not performing correctly they're not a proper assemblage in some sense right mm -hmm. and so one of the major differences between marvel comics and many of the comics that had come before which not that they hadn't experimented with monstrousness but you hadn't seen characters reacting sort of with a level of psychological realism to some of those conflicts the same way you see 
see with a character like the Hulk or the Thing that is struggling with monstrousness, or you see in Spider-Man struggling with monstrousness on a physical level a little bit, but certainly struggling with it on a level of public perception. He's perceived as monstrous, and you can even think about something like the design of the character's body, which, you know, covers his face and adds a degree of monstrosity to him that was new in the superhero genre at that time. So you have a character like Nightcrawler, who's existing in the legacy of that, where he's a monster hero. And we talked in some previous episodes about he how he approaches that dynamic a little bit differently because he's not a tragic monster in a lot of senses. He is in certain levels, but not in terms of personality. So, I mean, it's interesting to me here when you have a character like Megan or like Nightcrawler existing in this space, in this legacy of monster heroes, and sort of where are we in that story, in that legacy at this point in time? Because we have an absolute difference between the heroes and the villains here in terms of Nazis being the ultimate go-to baddies who are so clearly objectively evil and they're so wonderful as someone to punch and feel really good about ourselves. But at the same time, we have the doppelganger thing working in. And I'm really interested in the physical differences between the doppelganger, the Nazi doppelganger of Nightcrawler versus our regular Nightcrawler and what is kind of signaled there in terms of why is one monster redeemable and why is one monster irredeemable and how do we see that signaled in costume and body? And maybe we can come back to that because I think we should talk about Megan first because yeah, I really well, want to come back to Sam on I think that the question. answer to your I think the answer to your question about Nightcrawler mm-hmm. very much I mean preview two episodes from now not next episode but two episodes from now yeah. we're really going to deal like I just know what's happening in the future so spoilers and I'm without I know we're going to be dealing with that directly but I but I'm interested in Sam's point of view on Megan because when Sam, Sam when you were speaking earlier one of the things that you said that really struck me was you talked about Jean slash Phoenix as mm-hmm. the monstrous right mm-hmm. and I find her ignoring history that came after it the gene of dark phoenix saga who is the universe's greatest monster in a very Mm. real sense she is the you know she is the absolute embodiment of power and destructive force and can destroy a planet by you know waving at it but she is also a beautiful woman with human problems who you know just wants to lose her virginity to her longtime boyfriend and, <laughs> like i mean that's that's part of the dark, dark phoenix saga story yeah, right it's, yeah. yeah and and like so you are comparing the monstrousness on one hand is is sort of a metaphor for femininity and you know one view of it problematic though that may be right but on the other hand you are with that story creating the idea that monstrousness is not always just ugly right yeah. like it is not just the ugliness of being a literal girl you know mm-hmm. godzilla coming at mm-hmm. you and then i think that's where for me that's where you tie into megan megan constantly not so much in this issue because she doesn't have as much to do but a little bit in this issue because she's she's losing control of her powers and all the way up through here and boilers for the next 20 or 30 issues megan is going to constantly be going but i'm a monster would you love me if i look like this would you you know i'm a monster i'm a monster. she says that constantly and andrew wants to be your dad because of that because and the answer for, to that right? question is no he wouldn't yeah, yeah 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 no he wouldn't but i mean she she's constantly saying that and yet megan is a stunningly beautiful woman on mm. purpose and we talked about the goblin queen or goblin princess outfit megan's nazi outfit but for the nazi symbolism is a really kick-ass superhero design like i actually like her like her costume that davis came it's up with bad, her for yeah it. yeah it, it's <laughs> i mean it's as far as nazi outfits go it's pretty good, you know, <laughs> and because Davis is a great artist and I, and he clearly has kind of a soft spot for her as a character. He is not only the definitive artist. I mean, he's the most Megan artist at this point. Yeah, still. no, I don't disagree with that, but I, that, outfit with the like white pants like culotte like leggings I, I was like oh god that would be so hard to wear I, I just I, you me know it's, me. it's given me some like strong she-ra vibes I yeah, think yeah, it yeah. is yeah. definitely yeah. of the time um yeah it is very it is very it is very period-ish yeah. you know um but my, my point being she's still beautiful right she's a beautiful monster yeah. and I think that's kind of the story that it's the story she has like she's a beautiful monster and an empathic monster so that so much so that like when Kurt walks up behind her or Rachel walks up behind her without her even knowing they're there she turns into them let's get back maybe to that question and I'll put it to you Sam that sort of Andrew tried to get at a little while ago which is that do we see Megan as a distillation for a lot of these themes of the female monstrous or the feminine monstrous in comics and like how is this character an interesting character potentially anyway to play with some of those dynamics 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think absolutely. That's that's part of what I got so excited about. Um, and, and I think to this conversation that we've been having, one of the other really foundational ideas that comes from monster theory, um, again, this is a distillation of one, one of Jeffrey Jerome Cullen's seven theses, is that um, monsters are never just indicative of our fears. They're always also um, signaling our desires, right? And so the construction or recognition of um, monstrosity is a ha-ha sort of double-edged sword (laughs) where you are kind of dealing with yes both what is horrifying but also what is desirable and and so it makes perfect sense to me that that Megan is sort of characterized in this way and I think she does even in just this one issue she demonstrates a lot of what Freud supposedly found to be true um, about femininity, um, but specifically about about women. And again, not to say that he was right, but he sold a sort of whole bunch of ideas that then got into the drinking water of Western waves of thinking that we still kind of come up against again and again, even if they're deeply problematic. So for instance, that she can't control herself is a very sort of Freudian accusation about femininity, um, that she is leaky you know she's very fluid that um when kitty walks up to her when kurt does that it just she immediately starts to morph um and and the very fact of her her abilities that that is a very fluid process right it's it lacks strict boundaries and that is a kind of key thing um both for sort of freudian psychoanalysis of um gender norms but then also for monstrosity the threat of liquidity um is a big problem for uh, any kind of way of thinking where you need a taxonomy right like if you if you want to fix categories so that you can know them fluidity is definitely threatening but obviously when it appears in the in the form of a very normatively beautiful hyper feminine character like Megan you also desire it the other thing that I think is is really fascinating again about all of this and and I do think Megan is a really strong representative of the sort of monstrous feminine as it has been um, rendered or theorized about is that I think she could also be read as as what Julia Christopher calls the abject, right? So this, again, this idea, the abject is something, um, and she talks about it in a lot of her works, but in her book, Powers of Horror is probably one of the, the sort of most notable places where she theorizes this concept of the abject, that it is something that is both external to us, but it is also of us, and therefore it generates a sense of horror. So sorry for the graphic examples, but a lot of the things that Christopher talks about and trying to get us to understand this is stuff like blood or vomit. When it's outside of our body, it makes us feel revulsion. We are repulsed. It's disgusting. It gives you a visceral reaction, but you forget or you purposely suspend the understanding that that is actually of your body. And that like the porousness is what she suggests disrupts our ability to feel safe and okay, right? That that we cannot separate ourselves from this is what's most horrifying, but of course it is also of us. And so I think Megan is, is a really sort of fascinating embodiment of this idea that especially in, in this scene where Rachel kind of haplessly wanders in and Megan's lack of control forces them into that, I don't know what do you, you would even call it, that sort of like suspended like a psychic and physical fusion sort of yeah like, I mean, yeah Rachel's powers are both psychic and telekinetic so it is both things kind of because it is a physical merging that they're experiencing right absolutely um so i think this kind of you know that that megan is standing there taking on again fluidly sort of going from being more kitty like to more curt like and then in this interaction um with rachel is a great sort of visualization of the abject where and, and they talk about it right the dialogue even says I couldn't separate myself from her I couldn't tell what was her and what was me and they're both so upset about it 
and and that's exactly how this kind of this form of monstrosity works right where you desperately want to be able to separate yourself out but you can't because it is still you as horrifying as it is so i just love megan for this reason <laughs> i just think she's so fascinating and and what a character like this can do again i think read uncritically maybe you could interpret it as just sort of reifying these problematic norms of femininity but i think that you can also read it in more complex ways and that she is doing interesting things in the context of the book rather than just sort of conforming to sexist stereotypes. The last thing I really just quickly want to say about Megan and Monstrosity, so because I got so excited about her, I did go back and do some research about her origins. And when she was born, apparently she's born with her powers, unlike a lot of mutants that come into it later. And she's born with fur. So she actually looked like a little, you know, stereotypical monster. She's really cute, too. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Little furry thing. Which we find out she did because she was cold. So it was an adaptive sort of reaction. But of course, people reacted very badly to that. They treated her monstrously because of this appearance. And so she learns that she has to morph into sort of normative and acceptable forms of embodiment to please people. And and that, I, to me, again, I just found so amazing and why I would really prefer to see her continue her bond with Kurt, because this is another character who can understand, you know, a different form of, of being in the world and and I just love that about her but and I also find it really tragic that she goes about her existence trying to conform to what she thinks others are going to find beautiful is very relevant to me as a feminist scholar it resonates for me as a woman reader um, and I also would just really like it if she would go back to being furry <laughs> The thing that I wish had been explored more in terms of her relationship with Kurt that might have sold me on that relationship being viable is that if there'd been more exploitation of her appeal for Kurt as a shapeshifter, Mm. you know, because he is somebody that has the common experience with her and yet she has the ability to shift into a normative shape and he does not. And you can see how he would have a fascination with that and he has a fascination with that immediately upon meeting Mystique for the first time when she Mm -hmm. shapeshifts into her regular form and he immediately is like, oh my god you look just like me what's the connection between us it'll take 30 years for us to have that established (laughs) but anyway but I mean yeah you think about even the scene that we talked about where they almost kiss and she transforms into him and Uh the appeal that that must have for him not just in terms of a gesture of acceptance but as an idea of that you could transform into different types of monstrosity different types of beauty and I think that that must be so intoxicating for a character like this who as though he's learned to accept his difference he's always felt the burden of that difference and we've Mm -hmm. seen him experiment with the image inducer to try to hide or become different people but Megan can just do that as an aspect of herself and I think that that could be an aspect of her appeal to him that I don't think was ever really explored in the series but it definitely has a lot of potential I don't think it will be at all in fact I I mean like you just what you just said adds viability to the relationship that I've read all of these already and I don't think that ever comes up I mean it's like yeah that's a good example but as far as we know he only likes her because she's pretty I mean we mm-hmm. I mean your 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 reasoning's better Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know So There's if Marvel so would like to hire yeah. Anna to to write the new Excalibur you know they should. please <laughs> do but... but Andrew since you posed the question about sort of Megan and monstrosity and I know you've got a lot of thoughts about Megan as well is there anything that you want to add to kind of that discussion about her, her representing some of these ideas? No, just that I feel really validated by everything <laughs> Sam says. And it makes me really, really happy, and I'm just grinning like an idiot. So. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like I could discuss that forever. You're talking and I'm just like, oh, I have so many. I mean, like my whole dissertation was about Marvel and monsters. So I don't know why we haven't really (laughs) talked about this on the pod that much yet, because it's such a like fascinating. I mean, the thing that I do struggle with, with both Rachel Summers and Megan is just the fact that the emotional lack of control that both of them have, and that we see that encapsulated in the scene where they merge, right? So it is both sort of the problems and I don't know, the solutions to these things in a sense, because they're empowered by these stereotypes as much as yeah. they're a victim of them so you have both of those things going on which I think is a way that female characters in the Marvel Universe often don't get to participate in sort of the freedom of monstrosity the same mm-hmm. way that male characters do like yeah. a character mm-hmm. like the thing as much as he resents his monstrosity he gets to step outside almost of expectations of gender and sexuality altogether yeah. which yeah. is a tremendous freedom that a character like that has as well a character like Megan never gets to do that like because she always chooses to represent as normatively beautiful which is very 
narratively convenient. But, <laughs> you know, there's at least a possibility there with a character like that. And we are going to see some interesting things with her in future issues where she shapeshifts into a lot of different male and female and monstrous shapes to do various things. That will be something that we'll see in some issues moving forward. But like, yeah, you're really, Sam definitely really sold me on like kind of the potential of, of Megan in a way that I don't think I'd appreciated previously. Well, one thing I would just kind of maybe add to that is I really like how she's so sheltered and how that forms a metaphor for um, uh, a patriarchal society in a lot of ways, right? Uh, her her shape-shifting is about adapting to the needs of other, but it, it's routinely framed as a survival technique. Um, so I, I yeah. think there's a really cool kind of um, um, gendered component to it, if we want to dig for that at all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I, I think, Anna, I agree with you that this, and it's something that really bothers me um, about Jean Grey uh, as the phoenix. The liberatory potential of these things comes from us, <laughs> reading them yeah, in these yeah. in these different ways I think that it's important not to hedge that reality and I think there's a lot of interesting comics that that do you know go against the grain in, in really fascinating ways but I think we also put a lot into rereading creatively that allows us to both accept these sort of normative representations of gender and to see in them something more exciting um, and and yeah, I mean, I think Megan is. I am fascinated by her, and I and I want to think more about her. But Andrew, I think you're you're making this great point that she is also really demonstrative of the sort of limitations um, that patriarchy places on gendered people, and and you know, in for Megan, women in particular. I, I, I think. Have a question for Sam, if, since you're here, uh, yeah, just building on that. So if you're saying that there's these limitations, and I, I mean, I I buy into everything that you're saying, but would we have ever been able to escape it if we have a patriarchal view of gender, particularly in in a medium like the superhero comic, which is certainly in 1989 is targeting a presumed teen male reader, right? As mm. their as their as their standard reader, is there any way to escape it? Because I'm thinking of just other monstrous women in, in comics at that time, right? So yeah. you, you would have She-Hulk, who is very, well, less so now. Now she can sometimes be portrayed as a, you know, as a bulky woman. But she is very much portrayed as a beautiful monster. She is gorgeous, strikingly gorgeous, six foot ten, you know, Amazon woman. But around this time period in 1989, we have in Fantastic Four, Sharon Ventura, yeah. then Ms. Marvel, is at this point, she is a monster. She is, um, she looks like the thing. And she is often called She Thing. So visually, she, you know, she looks like Ben Grimm, like the thing, but then the story necessarily becomes why aren't you a beautiful woman anymore? Why do you look like a monster in a way that Ben Grimm never really I mean Ben Grimm feels like a monster. Wham wham wham. That's like part of his individual pathos. <laughs> well that, it is. I mean, it's what it's it's his most common storyline oh, in the sixties. Yeah. Why can why can no one love me? Wham 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 I wanna be even though Alicia's like, right there and does love him and actually prefers literally, him as yes. a thing, but he can't see that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, exactly that's exactly my point. And and yet he you know, but it's always that was always his thing. And by this point, he's not with Alicia anymore. He's with Sharon, whom he fell in love with. She fell in love with him. She is this beautiful woman who suddenly turns into a monster. And now she hates herself because it becomes the story of I cannot be beautiful. So I guess my question is, can we escape because we live in that gendered society? Right. Can we escape the notion of would we even be able to take Megan seriously as a character if she were a monstrous character who didn't care that she looked like a monster? Uh, like, yeah. You know, can can I add like can I can I add one note about Sharon that we can cut if I'm wrong about this? But was there not a backstory that was added to her where she wants Wanted to be a thing because there, she has a sexual abuse backstory, and she saw that as a way to protect herself or armor herself from That's that. That's interesting. I don't. I mean, I, I I certainly haven't read every Sharon Ventura story ever. She's had multiple reading... redos of her yeah. backstory, and I'm pretty sure know. that's one of them. But um, but I'm not sure if that was current at this time. At that time, we would be in the Fantastic Four 300s ish, and I don't remember it being part of the story right then. But I didn't love that book as 
much as I love this one. So I've not gone back and checked. I don't know that to be true or false. Okay. Well, if it ends up being true, we'll keep it in. If it's not, I'll cut it out. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm not sure on that one. Anyway, back to you, Sam. Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, and, you know, I can only say, like, the, the answer is fraught. To some extent, there is no outside of this. Uh, it's how, how we are trained to operate. Um, and so, yeah, like, I think it's disingenuous to try to suggest that that we could, of course, create and think and read differently entirely because we don't have any basis for that right now unless we run into our Nazi selves and we can ask them, right? Um, <laughs> but... <laughs> There's an infinite number of universes. They don't have to be Nazis. They I hope be, I hope not. Some of them are just dinosaurs. Yeah. yeah. That's always fun. And like, what is, it with, what is it with Davis and dinosaurs? Does he just like drawing dinosaurs? There's a whole arc about dinosaur people so. in his later X-Men run with Claremont as like well. Drawing dinosaurs? Walt Simonson loves dinosaurs so much that he made a signature into one. <laughs> That's the only other thing that I that I can think of, like right off the cuff in terms of I think part of part of your question and for me what I find really interesting and if we're thinking about Megan or thinking about Jean Grey, like in some ways, if we're gonna be honest, yeah, it's easier to like get all excited about monstrosity when it is attached to a normatively beautiful body, at least to some extent. Um, what happens then when we're dealing with what if Megan were furry? You know, what why do we continue to only explore these things via normative beauty and and just uh, as a shameless plug there is a great chapter in the monstrous women in comics book by stephanie snyder who tries to tackle this exactly where she basically makes the argument that ugly is far more productive and interesting than beauty is um and so if we really want to allow the monster to keep its power, if we if we don't want to defang the monster through our sort of normative standards, then we really ought to be creating more ugly characters um, than we are. The only thing I think is maybe if we were looking at villains than heroes, we could find more interesting examples where normative beauty is not part of the equation. But I would really have to put some more thought into that because, you know, for Anna, I wrote about the female characters in Thor. And while I'm really excited about and kind of waxed poetic about the monstrosity of Hela in particular, we're still talking about a character who was drawn in some normatively feminine ways and then obviously played by Kate Blanchett, who like please you could try as hard as you wanted to make her ugly and it's just not going to happen so you know i think there are limitations to this kind of framework when we are dealing with popular visual culture for sure i think that there's limitations and there's also possibilities in terms of the comic medium being able to show monstrousness as beautiful i mean just in terms of i mean if you go back to a character like the hulk or like the thing i mean the hulk is frankenstein's monster but a beautiful version of that contextualized through the fact that he's a hero and that's an interesting spin on it the way like I think about people I know anybody that I love is beautiful because I know them and they're beautiful mm -hmm. because I know them right Thank and you, so Anna. you have like <laughs> exactly compliments all around <laughs> but you know like so there is like that thing of like sort of the inside affecting the outside which can be a very subjective experience and yet I always wonder about the design of sort of monster heroes and the possibilities for kind of playing with some of those ideas because how can you convey attractive monstrousness and what would that kind of mean and for me it often means a character like Nightcrawler but I also mm -hmm. think that there are definite limits to a character like that in terms of when he's the most attractive to the majority of fans like when Alan Davis is drawing him he does have a more normatively masculine body than when other artists sometimes draw him a little bit more animal-like right mm -hmm. so you know it makes you ask different difficult questions about yourself of like you know I almost feel like I'm Megan being like would, or you know like asking <laughs> that of myself with Kurt right like if he looked a little bit more monstrous would I still be into it or uh -huh. like does it have to be just on this side of monstrousness in order for me to I think it, like I used to be obsessed with the character of Abe Sapien in Hellboy comics and then they gave him mm. a redesign that made him look a lot more monstrous and mm -hmm. it was a barrier for me it was a barrier for me with that character and it made me really think about my investment in that character and you know how how far is too far and how monstrous is too monstrous and I think it's a really productive medium for asking those kind of questions because it's this medium where anything that can be drawn can be believed and that can do yeah. some really interesting things like both good and bad but um is there any pressing stuff that we did i know we didn't talk about the nazi stuff that much we are going to talk about it a lot more in the next um episode so a lot more yeah <laughs> so don't 
don't worry about that. that. <laughs> We're going to talk about some of sort of the ethical issues with sort of representing Nazis in this space and going to get back to some of those questions. But any other pressing things that we really did want to talk about before we wrap up? I don't want to talk about it. I just want to point out that we said, oh, gosh, oh, golly, oh, wow, again in this, in this episode and didn't explain it. And we're not going to. So, you know. <laughs> oh, that was a question that I had, though. <laughs> is this the first issue where you see that? Like, nope. with okay. <laughs> it is not. You're, you're behind listening because you, you're recording before episodes come out. But no, it's, it's happened about four or five times. And, okay. and each time we're like, oh, yeah, the catchphrase is here. Yeah, moving on. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's a whole thing. I don't know at what point we actually do talk about it because it doesn't get revealed in the comic what the connection is. Anyway, we will just tease that it seems to be like this robot head often says some version of this phrase. And Kitty Pride sometimes says some version of that phrase as well. I wonder if there might be some sort of connection. But anyway, it'll take us a year of comics to find out. At this point, about a year and a half still. Yeah. It's going to be a bit. It'll be a while. <laughs> yeah. So hang so. in there. Um, Andrew, was there any final stuff that you wanted to spotlight before we wrap up? No, I'm totally good. Very, very happy with our discussion <laughs> on Megan. Oh, I just wanted to return us in closing to the Sword Strokes letters page and highlight a couple of letters for us. Um, I think I'll just probably read from one of them, although I did want to note that we have our first of what will be many odes of Kitty Pride to Kitty Pride in the Sword Strokes letters page. This letter is from Chris Kirkman. Kitty Pride is my dream girl. I fell in love that fateful day I picked up X-Men number 211. Sure, I had read issues farther back than that, but it thought no more about Kitty than any other team member. I awaited the return of Kitty for several months after the fall of the mutants so he's waiting for her and he's very pleased about her being drawn by alan davis especially her hair uh, so anyway i just wanted yes. to bring that one up because we are going to have many more odes to kitty pride in future issues um mm -hmm. some of them a little bit more amorous than that one even but the one that i did want to spotlight was a classic letter from a person who identifies themselves as christy holly from columbus ohio dear xo files which i don't know if that's a phrase that people were using or if this is a phrase specific to Christy, but I like it. Comic collectors are a skeptical lot, and I am no exception. So when I heard about Excalibur, I was not amused. Why should I have been? Two of my favorite X-Men were being teamed up with a British superhero I had never had much of an interest in, and his girlfriend, whom I had never even heard of, along with a former X-Man, Rachel, that I'd never even liked. However, like any loyal Marvelite, I bought the Excalibur bookshelf edition... <laughs> And I liked it. Actually, I loved it. Then I decided it had to be a fluke. No way could Claremont and company keep up the terrific artwork and excellent characterizations and fabulous scripting in the regular series. Nevertheless, I went ahead and purchased the first two regular issues of the book. And, well, I am now eating my words. I was wrong. Excalibur is exciting, funny, and truly off the wall. I haven't felt this way about a book since I picked up the first copy of X-Men years ago. It's like falling in love all over again. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Adorable. I love those kind of letters that are like, I wanted to hate the book, and I still hate the <laughs> The book, and then I bought more of the book, and now I really love the book. But anyway, thank you. I gave Editors you six whole dollars I'm just sure. to prove that I hated you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but luckily, it turned out for the best. Sounds like a cyber shill on Amazon. It Everyone does. Says it this does. movie's terrible, but I found <laughs> I was not born to live a man's life, but to be the stuff of future memory. The fellowship was a brief beginning a fair time that cannot be forgotten and because it will not be forgotten that fair time may come again anyway um i think we will wrap up there with a final chance for sam plug some of your pluggables where can people find you where can they read your work where can they buy your book oh yeah so um, monstrous women in comics is university press of mississippi um you can definitely buy it from their website although i believe it's now available through online retailers whom shall not be named. But <laughs> the other thing is that we would encourage anybody who's working with a university to ask their library to buy a copy. I think um, the book is very teachable and, and it's got lots of different chapters on different types of comics that would really appeal, I think, to students and faculty. Um, you can find me on Twitter. I, my handle isn't very exciting. I am literally 
just S underscore Langsdale. And uh, my website is samlangsdale.com. So I'd welcome um, to chat with anybody who wants to talk more about monstrous women, wants to talk more about superheroes. um, And I'm always always excited to talk more uh, about feminist philosophies so hit me up awesome thank you so much sam i loved this conversation so much next in one week's time we will get on to episode 10 in which we will be discussing excalibur number 10 widget which as the title suggests finally names that floating robot head hooray his history as we mentioned still won't be explained but at least he'll have a name we will also have (sighs) lots more nazi excalibur and as such lots more discussion about the ethics of depicting nazis and nazi symbolism in pop culture we'll have a really really great guest to walk us through all of those ethical dynamics in the meantime if you liked what you heard please follow us like and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or if you want to chat with us about excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode let us know you can reach out via our website goshgollywow.com where we've got some fun extras and via twitter at goshgollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you andrew and mav for another marvelous conversation thank you sam for lending us your sparkling intellect thank you for listening and a special thanks to maximilian of thought music for our truly epic theme song. Play us out.